We went from sitting up in the table to him out in six minutes. That's how quickly they performed the C-section. And when he came out, all we heard was our OB very, very quietly say, baby out. And we heard nothing else. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. And that's when, for me, I was going, okay, something's really, really wrong. Because there was nothing. You were supposed to hear baby cry. It's supposed to be joyous. It's, you should hear something. And we heard nothing. Hi there and welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud preemie mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing, and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different, and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please, always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge my opinions do not represent that of my employers. To close out HIE Awareness Month, I sat down with Bridget Janicek. She is the proud mother of William and Charlotte. For this episode, she bravely shares the story of her son William's traumatic delivery and subsequent treatment with therapeutic hypothermia due to his diagnosis of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE. Infants with HIE have experienced a lack of oxygen to the brain either prior to birth, during the birth process, after birth, or during childhood. Once the brain is deprived of oxygen, brain cells become injured. Once they are injured, the brain cells will either recover or they may die off due to the injury sustained. Infants with suspected HIE are treated in the NICU with therapeutic hypothermia or cooling that needs to be initiated within the first six hours of life. The cooling therapy reduces the rate of brain cell death and the risk of reperfusion injury, which commonly occurs due to the release of toxins from the injured brain cells. The cooling process occurs for 72 hours post-delivery and has been shown to minimize the extent of death and disability in children. Unfortunately, for many parents of children with HIE, they have had an uneventful and healthy pregnancy that suddenly flips sideways in the end and results in their full-term infant being admitted to the NICU in very critical condition. Parents of children with HIE commonly share how difficult the initial 72 hours of therapeutic hypothermia can be. They have to wait until the cooling and the rewarming processes are completed before their baby can get an MRI to visualize the extent of the brain injury. Even then, it is difficult for the NICU care team and neurologists to predict 
how any damage that occurred during the Sentinel event will affect the child's life moving forward and any disabilities that they may endure. And sadly, it is not uncommon for children with HIE to pass away while in the hospital or once they are at home. Bridget shares a more in-depth look into William's time in the NICU, why they felt like they were outcasts in the NICU world, and post-discharge, the struggles they endured once they were discharged home, and how she unknowingly was suffering from postpartum depression, perinatal mood disorder, and PTSD. We discuss ways it was helpful for her to work through her trauma, and why she is so passionate about sharing the message and bringing awareness to the fact that not all NICU babies are preterm, as well as the importance of focusing on maternal mental health. We cannot thank Bridget enough for sharing her family's very personal story. It is our goal to help bring awareness to HIE and to help break down some of the barriers and social disparities that exist with HIE infants and full-term NICU babies. Now, during my interview with Bridget, their one-year-old daughter, Charlotte, or who they call Lottie, joined in as well. She was incredibly well-behaved, but you may hear her at times playing or joining in on our chat. So stay tuned. You will not want to miss their story. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Finn and Emma, where modern colors, fresh prints, and heirloom quality construction are abundant. All of their garments are made with GOTS certified organic cotton and non-toxic, eco-friendly dyes. The toys are either made with untreated hardwood or hand-knit with organic cotton yarn. Confidently dress your little one in Finn and Emma's Basics collection that features solid colored bodysuits and pants in timeless colors, great for mixing and matching. Or shop their graphics collection to celebrate being the new little brother or find that perfect tee for the new big sister, as well as for those special occasions when your little one is celebrating their first holiday. Finn and Emma also have rockers that are ergonomically designed to soothe your little one or check out the beautiful macrame swing that is handmade by artisans in India and will keep your little one entertained but also look beautiful in your home or yard. They also ensure that their garments and accessories are produced in fair trade settings that focus on social and economic independence for local people, women especially, working to provide for their families in a safe and fair environment. Shop with a company that puts safety and social responsibility on the forefront. Find all of Finn and Emma's products at EmpoweringNICUParents.com forward slash Finn hyphen Emma. That's EmpoweringNICUParents.com forward slash F-I-N-N hyphen E-M-M-A or find the link in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Beauty Counter. Did you know that the last time the United States passed a major law to regulate ingredients in the personal care products industry was in 1938? Sadly, that means that there is minimal up-to-date regulation in the personal care products industry to protect you and your family. Many personal care products sold on shelves in your local store and online may contain ingredients that could be harmful to you. Sadly, for me, I never really considered the danger of personal care products until I was pregnant, and I knew there were certain ingredients I should not use. It was then that I discovered Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter's mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone. They developed a never list that omits over 1,800 harmful or questionable ingredients in their formulations, whereas the United States only omits 30 ingredients. 
With Beauty Counter's rigorous ingredient selection process, I know that the Beauty Counter makeup and personal care products I use for myself and my family are safe. Not only are the products safe, but very high-performing. Find my personal favorites, the Countertime Collection, which helps me age gracefully, and the All Bright Sea Serum that will instantly leave your skin glowing and radiant at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash beauty counter. That's empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash B-E-A-U-T-Y-C-O-U-N-T-E-R or find the link in our show notes. Now back to the episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, I am joined by Bridget Janicek. And Bridget, thank you so much for being here with us. I would love if you could share a little bit more about yourself, your family, where you live, etc. Hi, I'm Bridget Janicek. I am a mom of two. My oldest son is William, and our daughter is Charlotte. William was born about four years ago, and our daughter Charlotte was born in 2020, so she's a pandemic baby. We live in Orlando, Florida, and we absolutely love it here. In fact, she'll pop on and say hello a few times because she just wants to be a part of everything. (laughs) Oh, she's waving. (laughs) Too bad this actually isn't, you know, people cannot see it because she's adorable and she's waving at all of you, just so you know. So if you could share just a little bit more about uh, your son's pregnancy and delivery and anything else that, like I said, you'd like to share. Sure. I had uh, an actually a pretty textbook pregnancy, uh, short of some pretty wicked morning sickness my first trimester, but everything was going really smoothly. So smoothly, in fact, that I was 41 weeks pregnant and there was no getting him out. He was quite comfy cozy. So we decided to go for an induction, went in, was checked and no progress, nothing. So we started on Cervidil was uh, what they first started me on. I did two rounds of Cervidil and to start the process and fell asleep, woke up to what felt like a gush of liquid, thought, thank God, my water's finally broken. Yay, we're finally making some progress. They came down and checked me. And in fact, my water hadn't broken. I was actually bleeding, but the nurse didn't seem that concerned. She said, you're four centimeters. It's time to move you down to labor and delivery. And we start to notice more and more nurses come in They start checking me. They start moving me to my side, to my other side. They move me up onto all fours. They start administering oxygen, but it's very calm. Next thing we know, the resident comes in. They decide, hey, we're going to do an ultrasound just to check on the baby before we move you. They check on the baby and again, tell me everything's fine. Pull my husband aside very quietly and say, we've lost the baby's heartbeat. We're going to move for an emergency C-section right now. Very, very quickly, our room starts filling up with even more people and administer a shot to me that immediately stopped my contractions. Again, I didn't know piece of that story that its heartbeat had been lost. So I think that this is the most amazing thing on the planet because my contractions stopped immediately. And I'm thinking to myself, why aren't they telling this to women more often? You mean I could have a baby without contractions? I mean, (laughs) this should be like the first thing you tell women. Finally, they rush me out. But then all of a sudden, they recover his heartbeat again. So everything then stops again. And so we did this period from 2.45 in the morning to about 4 o'clock in the morning where it was mass panic, and then they restore his heartbeat. So we'd wait, wait and see what he would do. Finally, they decide, no, his heartbeat isn't recovering enough. We're going to go ahead and pull him. 
And I remember on the uh, operating room table, they administered the dermorph, so the spinal block. And I know a timestamp on it because I had the bracelet on my wrist that said when it was administered. And that was 425 in the morning. They had him out at 431 in the morning. So we went from sitting up in the table to him out in six minutes. That's how quickly they performed the C-section. And when he came out, all we heard was our OB very, very quietly say, baby out. And we heard nothing else. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. And that's when, for me, I was going, okay, something's really, really wrong. Because there was nothing. You were supposed to hear baby cry. It's supposed to be joyous. Even with the chaos, it's, you should hear something. And we heard nothing. Finally, a few minutes later, they tell my husband that he can come over and see the baby. And he came over and saw my son, William. And from what I was told was he was incredibly, incredibly pale, very limp, very floppy, little response. My husband came over, started talking to him. He opened his eyes and the nurse just gasped and said, that's the first he's done that to open my open his eyes and see my husband. By then he had been intubated. He already had umbilical tubes in. What we've been told from our nurses, our doctors, and the medical records was he had had three to six shots of epinephrine to restart his heart. He had been without oxygen that we know of for sure, uh, 15 minutes, oxygen and a heartbeat. And his APGARs were 0003. They got him to three at 15 minutes, which was big enough APGAR that they could then move him to the NICU. And so they put him in an isolate, wheeled him out. My husband came to my head on the operating table and said, look, he's right there. He's okay. And I remember thinking, his eyes are open. Thank God he's going to be okay. I was then taken to recovery. And things for me, it's like trying to remember something after you've had a really fun night out drinking the next day. It's very blurry (laughs) for for me at that point. I remember waking up then in recovery and my normal OB, who we tried to hope that was going to deliver him, but he wasn't on call. They had gotten a hold of him and he had rushed to the hospital, even though he wasn't on that night and waking up to him going, where's your husband? And I thought in my blurry state, oh, he's, he's just down at the reception desk. And I remember my OB looking at me and going, "Mm, that doesn't sound right. Again, faded out, woke up again to the delivering OB at my bedside, my husband there, and them starting to tell me that there was issues and complications with the birth. They, again, didn't tell me a lot of what was going on, but they at least told me he's in the NICU, he's in a special unit called ECMO, and they've put him in something called the cooling suit. We're going to take you down to go see him. And I'm wheeled into this room and my husband's saying, look, he's right there. And I'm kind of looking and I see my son laid out on the isolate, completely motionless on his back, just like a rag doll. And kind of, again, not sure what's happening. And my husband says, it's okay. You can touch him. And I remember I was just allowed to just touch, put my finger to his feet. That was it. Next time I remember is waking up in my actual room. Uh, for recovery. And I'll be very thankful for our hospital. Smart thing, they didn't put me on the mother and baby floor. They actually put me on the gynecological recovery floor. So I was separated, which looking back was a complete blessing in disguise because I don't know how I would have handled being on a floor, hearing healthy babies around me crying and healthy mothers and a lot of joyous events because we didn't know what was happening right there. We didn't know 
what the status of our son was. So we were away from all of that and the nurses were fabulous and very gentle and caring with us. And they treated my husband and I as a unit together. Once I was strong enough, I was able to come down to the NICU and see him. And he was, he was just a ragdoll laying there in this cooling suit, which made him look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man because he's completely covered in styrofoam head to toe and just nothing. And we were just waiting. That's all we could do was, was to just wait. And so it was three days of waiting of him being cooled with induced hypothermia. And that was to save his brain from any damage that had been caused from his birth. At his birth, they found out he had meconium in his lungs. He had the cord wrapped around his neck three times. There was a lot going on. And again, I had a healthy textbook pregnancy. He was growing on time. He was eight pounds, five ounces, 23 inches long. He was this giant moose of a baby in the NICU. Full-term eight-pound babies don't go to the NICU. We're, we're surrounded by, by teeny little guys and families with problems we thought at the time much worse than us. It was this confusion of why are we here? The first time we heard about HIE was actually a couple of days into our stay at the hospital. We hadn't been told much. And I think it's because they didn't know a lot. It was a lot of wait and see. There wasn't a lot of information. And so I think our neonatologists were just like, we're not going to tell you a lot yet because we don't know. Um, But one of our nurses, we were about to leave and she came up and she says, oh, let me give you a handout on a lot of that they've been telling you and handed this to me and walked away. And we went upstairs and I read this handout about HIE for the first time. And we're going, we haven't been told this. (laughs) And I just immediately, it was the first time I remember kind of panicking because we were reading this and it was potentially that our son was not going to be recoverable, that we were looking at a lifetime ahead of us of him not being able to do anything, him being in that ragdoll state for the rest of his life. And I remember my blood pressure spiked. It went through the roof. My nurse came rushing in going, what is going on? During this time period in the cooling, he started having what's called petite mouse seizures. And so he was put on seizure medication. After the two days of warming, they performed an MRI to see what the status of his brain was. And I remember that call, we, I was discharged at that point, that call telling me, hey, we've got the results of the MRI, the neonatologist wants to meet with you when you get here, was one of the worst drives to the hospital, because it was, again, you just start to spiral, that they're mm-hmm. not telling you anything on the phone. I remember just being so scared and anxious, and we went to his bedside, and we sat down, and he was still pretty out of it at that time. And didn't know what to expect. And our neonatologist came and sat down and said, we actually do have good news for you. His brain looks really good. We've only found a couple of dead cells in his basal ganglia. And I'm not a neonatologist. I said, I don't know what that is. She said, okay, that's the portion of your brain that helps control movement. It's akin to what you would see damage with Parkinson's patients. And I thought, okay, thank God I can deal with movement. He might just have a little skip to his step. That, that's fine. We can work with that. So very slowly, he came out. They weaned him off the medications. He was on a CPAP. He was on a feeding tube. And then it became what I call NICU land cha-cha of uh, one step forward, two steps back. Um, We weaned him off one seizure medication, and we're going on to Keppra now. We got to see how that does. 
we when we stepped down from ECMO to the step down NICU, that was a huge step. That was the first seeing him with the least amount of attachments was crazy. And then when we finally got to the step down, what kept him and I, it's such his personality. He's this stubborn little boy was passing the infamous car seat test. Wow. And he has to sit in a car seat for, for 90 minutes and not destat. And every time he sit down in that car seat, he would destat, even though he was perfectly fine. And he finally did. He passed it. We had all of our family were there playing quiet music for him, trying to distract him, trying to entertain <laughs> him, just trying to get him to sit in this dang car seat so that we can go home. So he was released after 18 days in the NICU. I was five days. He was 18. And the release from the NICU, and I'm with the parents that I work with now, it's like suddenly being thrown out of a plane without any parachute because you're right. used to, at that point, having all the help, all the nurses, people who know babies inside and out. That's your introduction to parenthood. And then you have nothing. It was very difficult. PT and OT. OT was pretty funny. The OTs uh, all laughed at him going, we're not sure why he's with us, but, you know, we're following the recommendation. PT took a little bit longer because he refused to turn his head to the left. He could do it. He just didn't want to do it when the PTs encouraged him to do it. So finally, after about two months, we were discharged from that. HIE is a diagnosis of a lot of wait and see. We were told it could be a lifelong disability or it could be nothing. They just don't know how the brain works and he could have recovered. So we were told to watch him and he's followed by a neurologist for his first five years of life. And those first few years struggled, at least for me, the first year, because I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop, right. just something to go wrong. And last year he was diagnosed with autism and we're very strongly convinced that they're, the two are connected just because it's too coincidental. And it just felt like, okay, there's the other shoe. It dropped four years later. So he's currently in occupational therapy again, and we're in speech therapy twice a week. We have behavioral therapy three times a week. You know, our diagnosis eventually came to us in the end. Thank you so much for sharing all that. There is so much to unpack there. I was becoming emotional hearing you talk about it. So I'm sure it's emotional for you to review it and go through it as well, especially the events leading up to his birth. And, you know, I'm curious if in hindsight, do you wish that they would have shared more with you as opposed to just speaking with your husband? Or do you appreciate that they somewhat kept you calm throughout the process? I think I appreciate it now looking back on it because I know my personality would have immediately gone into disaster control mode. That's how I am as a person. If we're if I'm presented with a challenge, it's okay, all right, let's fix this. And at that point in time, there would have been nothing I could have done other than just wind myself up and make myself more anxious. Right. I do wish we had gotten more information on the back end of of what to do after we were discharged and more information about HIE itself other than just this handout that our nurse handed us. Right. And that was my next question, I guess, is had you ever heard of HIE and do you feel like you received adequate information regarding it other than, you know, obviously just being given a pamphlet and what that did to you and your husband? I can't even imagine, especially 
while you're in the waiting process. But do you feel like you received enough information or you had enough information or did you find yourself going to Google or other resources on your own because you didn't necessarily understand at all? I found myself going to Google not right away. It was about a year later. We were just hoping everything was looking fine and he was looking fine and thinking, man, we just dodged a massive bullet. We didn't find ourselves starting to go to Dr. Google until we started noticing some milestones falling off. Right. But I do wish that we had been given more information, that we had been given resources or how to connect to a wonderful organization called Hope for HIE, which has I've found now and is just a wealth of knowledge and a community of parents like us. I remember being in the NICU and looking at the calendar of all the events that happen in the NICU that they try and organize for the parents and thinking, well, we don't belong. We're a full-term family. We're not supposed to be here. They're going to laugh us out of the room, all the other parents going, you're not one of us. And now I know better and know, hey, we are one of you. We're just a different one of you. And so I wish I had had that more, which is why I'm trying to fight for that with our NICU now. Right. If you mentioned being discharged and not necessarily feeling prepared, had anybody at that point mentioned additional resources or even hope for HIE in regards to follow-up so you felt like just really ill-prepared to be sent out into the world with this baby that looked well, but you had so many unknowns about? Yeah, it, it was I wish I'd had something like that. I remember going to a mother-baby lactation group not long after our discharge, uh, again, trying to find community and feel a sense of that I was a mom because starting out in the NICU as a mom was incredibly difficult because you don't feel like a mom. It's completely taken over. And, you know, you wrote down a question on a little post-it and you'd, you'd give it up there and they, as a group, answer questions. And my question is, how do you do this after you've been a NICU discharge? And it's led by some nurses at the hospital, lactation nurses, and they didn't really have a response for me. Felt so lonely and so isolating, but it was hard because, again, like you said, we have a baby that looks outwardly completely normal. There was, at that time, nothing wrong with him. Our pediatricians, everyone's telling us it's a miracle. It's a miracle. He's alive. He survived so much. Look how great you all are doing. And I, as a mom, was just going, yeah, but. Right. (laughs) You know, I I, I was terrified inside, but I didn't want to say anything because, again, we felt like we had just been given this miracle. We dodged this huge bullet. We could have walked away from the hospital without him at, at all. That was a very real possibility. Absolutely. If I had delivered at my original hospital, he would have had to have been life flighted. Right. And it wouldn't have been enough time to save him. It was getting him in the cooling suit was a matter of minutes. It was just an elevator ride and it saved his life. So we were in the right place at the right time. But I wish we'd had more community and knowledge for after the fact. Right. Absolutely. And you mentioned, and you've shared with me that you now sit on the parents' council for the NICU, but then you're also on the hospital's patient advisory council, and then you also present for the hospital's foundation. You shared a little bit, but what drove you to share William's story and to be a part of those committees? Our hospital does an event every year in September for NICU Awareness Month, 
and we went to it his first year and my mother who can talk to a wall started talking to a woman at the event and it turned out it was the director for the foundation and she was telling our story about our son and she came over and wanted to meet us we want to learn more and it was divine providence we got to talking and the hospital foundation really reached out and then they're the ones who said look we have a NICU council we have a patient advisory council we need families like you on it because we want to do better we dropped the ball we need you on this so you can help guide us and that feeling that we had that we didn't belong she's like that's not what we want we need people like you we need all sorts of NICU families uh, not just preemies there are all kinds of babies. There's babies with heart conditions, jaundice. Anytime that you have a family in the NICU, they need to be represented and they need connection. So at first I was very nervous about it because it felt like opening up an old wound, exposing that, you know, I struggled as a mom and it became the best thing for me. It was actually amazing. I call it personal therapy because I was able to talk and tell right. our story that I had been so afraid to talk and tell our story too anyone and everyone. And I love connecting with our families. You mentioned too a little bit again that you are the only parents of a full-term baby on the Parents Council. Do you find in general, like even out in the public, that there are misconceptions or misunderstandings like from society that actually downplay the significance? Like we said, William looked you know, and appear to be perfectly normal. Do you find yourself having to explain, yes, but, or how, how do you feel about all that? I definitely do. My own personal thing is I'm constantly, when, when NICU Awareness Month comes around, as I'm always trying to change the narrative of not just preemies, because it can feel very excluding. I love the fact that Hope for HIE is trying very much to say all babies. Right. Yes. And so what are ways, like I said, obviously, you know, you and I chatting here, and like you mentioned, Hope for HIE is very big on inclusiveness, which I wholly support. But what are other ways that we can help bring awareness or that you try to bring awareness to the fact that, yes, it's not just all preemies in the NICU? Honestly, I would say a, one big push I would love to do working with some of our providers in educating them more about reaching out to the families like us. Or anytime I'd have to give a medical history, I would have to explain what HIE is. Ridiculous. Only once as I'm giving his history, they went, we know what that is. And it just felt like this huge relief on my part that I wasn't this translator. Right. No, absolutely. Yes. For our own providers that you learn more about this world, more about your patients in the NICU who can come through the NICU other than just preemies, because there's families like us that are carrying this and having to share it. And we will willingly share it, but it's so nice to be recognized and be able to lay it down for a minute to someone who goes, yeah, I've got it. I understand. We know what to do. Right. Because being a parent in the NICU is hard enough, you know, as I know that you know, and everybody has their own situation and their own circumstances, but just in general, it's so difficult. So I think to have that extra piece on top of it that you feel as though it's perhaps being downplayed because your son was over eight pounds is, I just can't even imagine how difficult that was. What are some other ways that have helped you work through some of that NICU trauma and even probably some of the PTSD with William's delivery and then everything thereafter? Honestly, it was doing the foundation tours. They come in and 
then we went up to the NICU and it was just like this flood. I hadn't been in the NICU in a year mm-hmm. and I was very scared going, okay, this is either going to go really well or it's going to be this crashing back of all just horrible memories. And I came back on and what hit me the first was the smell. <laughs> right. That was just like an immediate, like I knew exactly where I was as soon as the elevator doors opened and that the smell of the NICU hit me and it doesn't smell bad or anything. It just, it has a, a memory. Distinctive. Scent. Yes. It's distinctive. We walked in and we went down the hall and it was like looking around going, okay, I remember dropping off my milk right there. That's where we go and wash our hands. And, but I wasn't doing it. I wasn't a patient. I was an observer for the first time. And so it was a disconnect, but it was healthy for me to process that, like, okay, I'm in this environment, but I wasn't in the environment. Right. And the more I did that, the more I presented and the more I walked on the floor and I had a little bit of power because my badge for the hospital as a volunteer had access to being able to open the doors. And I chose to open that door. I wasn't having to wait to have someone allow me to open the door to go see my own child. (laughs) That was very therapeutic and helped the most for me. But it, it, was a, it was a long time to get to that. Like I said, it was a full year of not knowing I had postpartum depression and PTSD, of just struggling. And my son and my husband are so bonded and connected, and we weren't. Um, we are bonded and connected in a different way, but the two of them are, are absolutely thick as thieves. And I never had that with him. And I carry a lot of guilt thinking that was, that was because of the NICU. The first person he saw was my husband. He was this little baby duckling. He imprinted on him right away. And he didn't see mom or mom didn't get to touch him or hold him for the first five days of his life. He has no drive and connection. That was a lot of guilt. And I remember thinking it can't be postpartum depression because I was cleared of that at that wonderful six-week appointment (laughs) I was told I was fine and looking back on it that was hilarious (laughs) because we had just been discharged from the NICU it was the day after Christmas we were on this absolute adrenaline high of you know we'd just been home with a baby for about two weeks and Christmas was happening so of course I am this manic high and I appear to be fine and then just nothing after that And we had educated ourselves. My husband and I thought, okay, we knew what to do. We were looking for the signs. I wasn't that sad. I didn't want to harm myself or harm my baby. And I had a lot of good days, but I had a lot of days that were really struggling. And it hit at at his first year close to his birth coming up. And I really started thinking and remembering more. Good timing that the hospital foundation reached out and encouraged me to become a presenter with them, sought my own counseling went on medication and the combo of the three really helped and thrived and working and reaching out to parents like us to hopefully not have a mom butts like me. I don't want history to repeat itself. I want other moms that are like me, that textbook pregnancy where it just went sideways in a few minutes to know you're not alone. I want them prepared that they might have PMD afterwards let the dads know that we went to an event that was a dad's event. And it was the first time I I brought my husband with me and I saw him really starting to talk through it with other fathers in the NICU. And it was the first time I'd really seen him divulge it because he had been saying, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, count our blessings. I'm totally fine. I'm going, "Uh, 
<laughs> that's what I thought. And it turned out it wasn't true. It was really amazing and wonderful to see that process happen in real time with him and that connection with other fathers and then them reaching out and asking questions about what to look for in the moms. How can they help? What are little things that that they might not catch that aren't on that wonderful six-week checklist of looking for mood disorders? We try and work really hard with that. It's interesting that you say that. I just released a podcast just yesterday, and it's all about all of the feelings that NICU parents have, and mm-hmm. so many of them that, as a mom, I was surprised by the things that came up in my head, but also they were very normal for any NICU parent. And you mentioned the guilt, which is huge, and the inability to really bond because you've just been through this crazy traumatic experience. And that is so common. And I just love that you brought that up because I think so many times we downplay it, we minimize it, we don't Mm -hmm. address it. And I always joke at my six-week appointment, you know, William was still in the NICU and I knew exactly what to put on the questionnaire so that I wasn't red flagged. But I also knew I probably wasn't doing well, but by golly, I was not going to tell anybody. And even after we brought him home, kind of like you mentioned, I just proceeded on. I was focused on him. What do we need to do? Is early intervention coming this week? All of the things. And it took me years later, years to finally, Mm -hmm. like I was snapping at people and I just wasn't my best self to say, wow, I really probably need to go talk to somebody about everything that's happened with him and then everything that has happened thereafter, you know, with our families. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up and talking so openly about it because yes, I want all, especially mothers, but all parents to know that being in the NICU is traumatic, regardless whether you're in there Mm. for two days or four months, and really just be proactive about getting help. Because I think with any NICU stay, but it is traumatic and it will Mm -hmm. technically probably cause some PTSD. So the quicker that you can address it and work through it, the better. Thank you again so much for sharing so openly about your family story and about William. And the second that you told me his name got all warm and fuzzy because my son is William too. So I really, really appreciate it. We really wanted to, like I said, just spotlight HIE and we mentioned Hope for HIE and we'll put all those links in the show notes just so other families can go and check it out. And as you mentioned, they give great support and family support and peer support because as you said, nobody else quite knows what you're going through other than the families that have been through it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time and all your, you know, dedication to the families and everything that you're giving back. Thank you for having me. It was really wonderful. Thank you again to Bridget and the Janicek family for sharing your deeply personal story. It is so great to hear how William is progressing and I know he will continue to thrive with all of the love and support from his family. I love the courage of these strong families and especially the mothers who have chosen to take their very traumatic experience and all of the lessons they have learned along the way and give back to help other families. It is difficult to talk about your trauma, to openly share your story, and to admit that you were struggling, whether it was with depression, PTSD, maternal guilt, or even bonding with your baby. But I also know that not only do we grow by exploring our feelings and working through them, but we can also serve other families by sharing our stories and educating them. It is exactly why I created Empowering NICU Parents and this podcast. If I can help one family along the way by supporting, 
educating and empowering them, but most importantly, ensuring that they know they are not alone, then it is all worth it. Thank you again, Bridget, for being brave enough to openly share your experience, but for also finding the courage to volunteer your time and help so many others through so many platforms. We also want to continue to honor all of the children and the families affected by HIE, and not just in the month of April, but year-round as well. We remember those who have lost their battle from HIE or complications associated with it and want to continue to bring global awareness to the social disparities present for term NICU infants and to continue to strive for inclusive messaging. To get in touch with Bridget or for resources mentioned during the episode, including Hope for HIE, find the links in the show notes at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 29. Please, as always, consider sharing this episode or our podcast with someone who will gain some value from it. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing so you do not miss an episode, and we always appreciate reviews as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast, and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear, so make sure you let me know in the comments section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.